Join me, Dr. Cathy Weston, for my podcast series, Get a Grip, brought to you by Tooled Up Education, the home of evidence-based tips on parenting, family life and education. In each podcast, I help unpick some of the trickier questions relating to how we raise children today. How do we talk to children about mental health? How can we make sure our children engage safely with the digital world? Whose responsibility is the mental health education of our children, teachers or parents? These podcasts get me talking and you thinking. I've reached out to today's thought leaders and main researchers in this area and asked them their views on the areas where we need to get a grip. Michael S.C. Thomas is a professor of cognitive neuroscience at Birkbeck, University of London, and director of the Centre for Educational Neuroscience. One of his main interests is the translation of research between neuroscience and education. With Cathy Rogers, he recently published the book Educational Neuroscience, The Basics, Routledge 2023. The focus of his research laboratory, the Development Neurocognition Lab, is to use multidisciplinary methods to understand the brain and cognitive bases of cognitive variability, including the use of behavioural, brain imaging, computational and genetic methods. He has published over 150 scientific papers, books and book chapters, and his work has been cited over 10,000 times. He is a chartered psychologist, fellow of the British Psychological Society, fellow of the US Association for Psychological Science, and senior fellow of the UK Higher Education Academy. Simon Green was for many years a senior lecturer in psychology at Birkbeck, University of London. Recently retired, he specialised in teaching introductory neuroscience to first-year students. Along the way, he published several textbooks in the area, including Principles of Biopsychology, still in print after 25 years. His research interests include neurotransmitter and hormonal modulation of brain function, the evolutionary background to the modern human brain, and the psychological and biological roots of psychological disorders. He is a chartered psychologist and a member of the British Psychological Society. Welcome to the Stilled Up Education podcast with me, Dr. Cathy Weston, and I'm very, very excited to be introducing you all to Michael Thomas and Simon Green, both authors of an amazing book called How the Brain Works, What Psychology Students Need to Know. How are you both? Very well, thank you. Yes, thanks, Cathy. Yeah, we're very well. Now, I have to say, this book, which has sat by my bedside table for about three weeks, it's probably the only book which is so very scientifically rigorously written, but I really, really enjoy it at bedtime. I'm literally sitting there with a fluorescent pen and a biro going through it and nudging my husband and saying, did you know this? This is amazing. What an amazing fact. So this is an extraordinary achievement writing this book, but I want to learn more about how you came to write it and how your collaboration took shape. And what you wanted to achieve by writing it, you said in the title, it's for psychology students, but I'm going to come back to that point because I think it has a much wider reach. So Simon, tell us how it all started. Well, it was an initiative by Michael. I think he always wanted to write this book, but he was worried he wouldn't find enough time in his astonishingly busy schedule to actually write the whole thing. And there were some areas, some topics he probably felt that uh, because I have experience of teaching introductory neuroscience over the last 30 or 40 years, that there were some topics which I could maybe handle a bit more easily than he could. And as I'm semi-retired, I would also have more time to sit around, procrastinate, but still find time to write it. So I think from my point of view, there were some areas which, frankly, I couldn't have written, that Michael has a particular view on brain systems and that, which I had to engage with as well. I didn't automatically think, oh, yes, I understand all of that. It was a question of trying to understand where he was coming from, his view of how we should present the brain. And that, for me, was quite exciting because it went against the standard textbooks I've been using all my teaching life and a couple of which I actually wrote but they were very traditional. And this took a very different approach of, you know, a really interesting approach. And do you know what I loved about it? The admission that we don't really know as much about the brain. <laughs> you two admit that there's so much we actually don't know, even in the preface to the book. 
Yes. I mean, when I began in the 70s, uh, sorry, I don't want to take up the whole podcast with my history, but when I started teaching this stuff in the 70s, which was brain function, in those days it was called biological psychology or physiological psychology rather than neuroscience. We knew quite a lot, but huge gaps. And what changed in the last 20 or 30 years was a revolution in techniques for studying the brain, particularly the uh, use of brain scanners to study the human brain. Prior to that, a lot of our knowledge came from animal studies, using rats, mice, monkeys. Relatively little was actually done on the human brain and human brain functioning because we didn't have the techniques. Last 20 or 30 years, huge explosion. Uh, I mean, the information, if I was beginning now, I could do about a quarter in a given module of what I used to do because there is so much more to cover now. So Michael, tell us a little bit about your motivation for pulling this together. And I'm desperate to know how long this book took as well. <laughs> well, it depends whether you include the pandemic or not. It uh, slowed us down a, a little bit. I should say one of the things that Simon and I have in common is is we both have twin sons who are, who are about the same age, 12, 13. So we were bonded by the, the experience of, of being fathers of twin boys. So my, my interest, quite, quite a long interest, which really goes back to why I got into science, why I got into research, is a, a sort of curiosity in, in how things work. Really getting into the, the, the mechanisms are probably I was pulling things apart as a toddler to see what went on inside them. So I've always had that interest in how the mind works. So I got into psychology and, and you know, things about memory and, and attention and perception and so forth. And my experience in neuroanatomy, neuroscience, to begin with, I couldn't really connect those two things. So neuroscience seemed to me a lot about labeling different bits of the brain with like fancy Latin names and being told that there were lobes and there was an amygdala and a hippocampus so it was a, a lot of facts to learn and then there was seemed to be a lot of techniques you had to learn what brain scanning was and, and what uh, electroencephalograms and it all just seemed unconnected facts so it took me a long time to think about what is the relevance of that neuroscience to, to uh, understanding how the mind works and partly i got involved in ai and now you see amazing things from from what computers can do and what they can learn and even uh, kind of robots and there was a sort of a dawning understanding that you know you could probably do thinking differently the more we understand about ai that there are, there are lots of different ways we could have thought but actually that the way our minds work depends on how our brains work and how our brains work depends on biology and biology works the way it does because of evolution. So that, that kind of led me into trying to think about the brain as how it informs how our minds work. And then when I was getting into this thinking in a, in a sense, in a, in a technical term, about what are the implementation constraints of the, of the brain? How does the brain shape how we think? And uh, I'm going to push this on to Simon in a minute. So one of the fascinating things is, like, why do we sleep? That seems like a really crazy thing to kind of go offline for a third of our lives. There must be something to do with the biology that means we have to sleep. So that, that was really the, the genesis of the book. And, and then I, I roped Simon in because he, he wrote a sort of landmark book in the 1990s that is still in print and, and widely in demand today on, on biopsychology. And I thought I, I couldn't get a better co-author than Simon. <laughs> And there's so much humour in the book. I mean, I was reading it and chuckling out loud at some points. And I, I know it's a very minor point, but who drew the sketches that sort of are peppered through the book? Oh, so that's uh, Scarlett Forrester, who's a, a talented illustrator. And she actually has a, a, a background. She completed a, a master's in psychology. So sort of interested in the brain and the brain sciences, but a, a very gifted cartoonist. And Simon and I would, would scribble things on post-it notes <laughs> and send them along to um, take photos on our phones and send them along to Scarlett and say, could you, could you draw something impressive looking from our, <laughs> our little sketch? And then she would come back saying she didn't understand it and she can improve it. And uh, that's how, how we got there in the end. So we're, yeah, we're privileged to have that, that kind of art in our book as well. Now, the one thing we all have in common is we all have teenage boys or prepubescent boys. And I thought there's so many things, there's so much detail in this book, but I've decided to focus down on questions that parents have submitted in advance 
of this interview because it helps you showcase the knowledge that is within the book and how we can really apply that knowledge in our real life parenting. And of course, everybody's incredibly curious as to how two brain experts could actually, what you can teach us about the application of research in real life parenting. And I want to start with that topic of sleep. As we all know, as our children move into the teenage years, getting them to go to bed at night, they're always at the fridge at about 11 o'clock at night. They seem wide awake. They don't want to go to bed. And I wanted to talk about the, you mentioned this in the book, you talk a lot about circadian rhythms. You talk about the impact of sleep on learning and memory and consolidation of memories and all the crazy things that the brain does, you know, creating narratives and all sorts of things. Let's talk through adolescent sleep and what is happening during that period of time. And importantly, what do we need to know as parents that we can convey to our teenagers around the importance of sleep for learning, memory, uh, and also for their mental health. So, so over to you. Who's going to take that question? Well, well I'll, I'll make a start. When I, you know, I keep going back to when I began lecturing here, but it gives me a perspective on where we are now. In the early years of the 20th century, when sleep began to be studied, it was initially seen as simply a time when uh, it kept animals safe. You're taking this evolutionary perspective. And don't forget, as we say in the book, you can identify states that look like sleep or certainly rest versus activity. In, uh, well, a recent claim was that you could identify sleep in the amoeba. And certainly in primitive organisms like the jellyfish, don't really want to insult jellyfish, but we can see them as a bit more primitive than us. You can certainly identify states that look very much like sleep. So it has a long evolutionary history, but it was still seen in humans, say in the early years of the 20th century, as a time when it simply kept you safe when it was too dark to do anything else. And like almost every area of neuroscience, that picture has now been totally transformed. It's a hugely complex state. It's not a passive state. There are these different stages of sleep. There's dreaming sleep or REM sleep, and there's non-REM sleep, and it's deeper stages of slow wave sleep. We oscillate between those stages during a night's sleep. The control systems are just phenomenally complex, you know, for turning one stage on, for turning another stage off, for keeping the cycle going. As you pointed out, Kathy, we have circadian rhythms, so they have to be controlled when we go to sleep and when we wake up. And the other side that's become hugely more complex are the functions of sleep. Initially, say 50 years ago, a lot of focus on restoration. You know, if you had a sleepless night, you didn't feel great. You, know, you tended to sleep a little bit more the following night or, or the following few nights. Systematic studies demonstrated that that is obviously true. You can deprive people of sleep for one night, two nights, three nights, and when they're allowed to sleep, they will recover, but they'll recover those deeper stages of sleep. They'll recover REM sleep, they'll have more REM sleep, and they'll have more very deep, slow-wave sleep. The lighter stages of sleep uh, don't seem to be so important. And then people started looking at things like memory and learning. And this is where studies in animals can come in, now backed up by studies in humans, that during sleep, there's this crosstalk between parts of the brain, in particular, the hippocampus, which is uh, important for our short-term episodic memories of things that happen. During sleep, there's crosstalk between the hippocampus and the prefrontal cortical areas. So memories are being transferred out of the hippocampus into the cortex for storage. It's less certain, but there are certainly ideas about the role of REM sleep and non-REM sleep having different functions in relation to memory and maybe even in relation to forgetting. But suddenly we had this whole cognitive area related to sleep. It wasn't just being quiet for a night. It was actively processing what happened during the day, you know, embedding material in long-term storage, freeing up the hippocampus to take in a load more episodic memories from your daily activities. That was one side. And then over the last five, six years, there's been increasing interest in physiological functions of sleep. One important area, it seems to be a time when the brain is sifting out waste materials. There are chambers inside the brain, fluid-filled chambers called the ventricles. And again, there's 
an exchange of materials between ventricles and brain tissue. We're sifting out waste materials. One area people have honed in on are things like Alzheimer's, which may be related to a buildup of waste materials in the brain, these abnormal proteins. And sleep might be a time, reasonably good evidence now, where that waste material is being sifted out into the ventricles and keeping the brain healthy. So one thing to pull across to kids is sleep isn't just, oh, I feel a bit tired, I need to sleep. Well, no, I'm not really tired, I'm not going to bed yet, I feel very lively. Is pointing out it's not just a case of being alert, it's a case of keeping the brain really, really healthy. Now, there's also been a lot of talk about uh, circadian rhythms, this popular idea that some people are morning people, some people are evening people. In adolescence, there's a shift towards more of a, you know, you want to wake up in late morning. The evidence on that is slightly controversial and inconsistent. Most people actually end up being somewhere in the middle and being quite happy to wake up at a reasonable time in the morning and go to bed at a reasonable time in the evening. So what I try to do with my boys, uh, without any success at all, is to try and persuade them that A, the brain needs to slow down and calm down in the evening, so they shouldn't be on their, uh, what they refer to as their devices. Their device time needs to end early-ish in the evening to give them plenty of time for brains to settle. You know, The idea you get away from stimulation, you get into a set routine, so the brain becomes prepared. This is now the time where it slows down. One point I should make is that you can't force it. I have a younger boy as well, who's nine, who, who's wide awake at half past 10 at night, who's chatting away, you know, he wants to read, he wonders what Y equals MX plus C actually means. It's very hard to say to him, you have to sleep, your brain needs to recover, there's a ton of stuff going on in the brain, neurons are being repaired, waste materials are being you're extruded, you're laying down the day's memories into long-term storage. Frankly, you don't get very far, actually, not even with 12-year-olds. But the message is routine, I think. And if the routine is that he won't go to sleep till half 10, well, you have to live with that and accept it as an individual difference. The other boys are more routine. They've got the idea. They come off their uh, stimulating devices with their blue screens early-ish in the evening. And they're beginning to understand that that's necessary so that they slow down. And one thing that they still like, and I enjoy, you know, because I feel they need to know about the history of the British Isles, is being read to. They don't remember anything I read to them. They just like being read to as they drift off to sleep. That's right. And that's very much about that parental-child connection, which is so rich at that yes, stage of parenting. Yes, it absolutely is. And you can't impose things. Uh, you have to work with them acknowledge there are things they will not accept and will not go along with, like they will not go to bed at seven o'clock. But you can work with them to make it more reasonable than staying up till 11 o'clock. Unless, as I say with the younger boy, it clearly it's part of his circadian rhythm at the moment that he becomes very alert late at night. And there's no, no real point in fighting that. You, you can have him in bed, you can have him relaxed, you can read to him, he can do some reading. But you can't force him, can't force him to go to sleep. Simon, you sound like a very patient man, I must say. Very, very consistent. <laughs> well, you, sh- you should ask the family, <laughs> why won't you go to sleep? Please go to sleep. Oh. It's incredibly reassuring listening to you. Michael, can I ask you about some data that I've seen around teenage mental health and sleep? Data that's quite concerning about short sleep duration and how it can even be linked to things like suicidal ideation, increased impulsivity and risk taking. How can sleep deprivation lead to that kind of impulsivity that is already quite worrying in that teenage population? Yeah, so I'll give you an overall picture, but then I'll talk about some specific studies and, and maybe suggest that, that, that things are, are complicated just from a, a research perspective to, to understand what's going on. So we do know when you're sleep deprived that there are particular brain systems that are going to suffer more from that. And that in particular is prefrontal cortex that's going to be involved in cognitive control, making decisions, uh, resisting impulses, these kind of things. 
And when we haven't had enough sleep, these are the, the kinds of abilities that are not going to work as well. We also know that that it that in terms of mood and emotions, that, that these are sensitive to the, the delicate kind of neurochemistry of, of the brain. And when you put it in a sleep-deprived state, you can disrupt that delicate balance and, and then have effects on, on mood. So we live in a world where the science may well tell us that it probably be better for adolescents to start school around 10-ish, kind of when they're ready, right? And then they can pay attention and maybe maybe the lessons can go a, a little bit longer in the afternoon. But we're in a world where you can't stagger the starts of schools according to the exact need of the, the biology of children at different ages because parents are coordinating their school runs and the teachers have to open up the building and there are, there are all these kind of practical consequences. And so studies have actually looked at adolescents and, and tried to work out the sleep debt they are accumulating in the week. And, and typically you'd, you'd assess that by seeing how long they lie in on a Saturday. So the kind of accumulated sleep debt through the week. And we can see that, that there's a change in age and, and, and certain individuals, if they're feeling like they need to stay up late, but the timetable of the following day is fixed that, that they will accumulate a shortfall in, in sleep. And then that will have consequences on those first lessons that they attend. I think there are possible lessons there for, for scheduling for, for teenagers. If, if you cannot move lessons earlier, at least don't have the first lessons of the day to require a, a heavy level of attention. So the, the research in this area, if you can't change the start of the school day, partly is what Simon was talking about. You need to improve your sleep hygiene. You need to, to understand what, how best to structure your evening so, so that you'll, you'll give your, your best chance of going to sleep. So I've been involved in a, in a big project with Imperial College as well called the SCAMP project, where we've been following teenagers over a number of years, having a look at their use of mobile phones, particularly, but also their cognitive development and their sleep and their mental health. So a lot of the important factors in, in the teenage experience in education in, in home. We find some interesting things. For example, we found that teenagers' sleep debt that they accumulated was predicted by whether they were using their phones late at night. <gasps> Simon Shock, al horror. already alluded to... <laughs> Already alluded to uh, the blue light. Interestingly, we found that it was worse for disrupting sleep if you looked at your phone with the lights off in your bedroom. And that suggests that it really is quite low level, that in low light, you'll let more of the light, your pupil will open to let in more light. And if that's from the phone, it's more blue light where your brain is thinking, oh, it must be daytime, so I shouldn't go to sleep. So some of those basic factors. But then we were following these teenagers in this sample over, over several years, and, and we could actually have a look at the relationship between their levels of sleep and their mental health. And the story there gets complicated because... With some mental health conditions, say with depression and anxiety, they can disrupt sleep. But you could also have the story where not getting enough sleep might increase the risk of mental health conditions, of mood disruptions. And the, the data suggested it was a bit of both. So it's it's not a clear picture that if you don't get enough sleep, there will be mental health consequences, a bit of that. But also we know that there can be sleep disruptions that related to differences in mental health. And I think the story there is we do know sleep is important here. So for everyone, this is something that, that we should work on to get the best sleep we can. Okay. And there's a talking about learning. There's a fantastic, there are two pages in your book that I think should be in every teacher training course. It's quite worrying if they're not. And that's page 158 and 159. I'm not going to ask you if you can remember what's on that page. But it's essentially about the eight different neural systems underlying learning. And when I read through that, I was like, wow, this is fascinating stuff. That it, how complex it is, but also how can we take what we know in those two pages and apply it to revision, to learning in the classroom? It's very exciting because it, it sort of highlights how the brain sort of enjoys learning or how novelty can increase learning or the way in which we space learning can have an impact on progress. So let's sort of talk us through, let's try and translate those two pages a little bit for both educators and parents and think about how we can apply that, you know, in real life situations like preparing for an exam or a test. 
Yeah, so uh, obviously Simon and I are feverishly trying to turn to page 159 to I, remember what we I wrote there. I do have it in front. Um, <laughs> conceptual, control, procedural, episodic. Before Michael Cole jumps in on this, I should point out that teachers have, they may not have realised it, but uh, effective teachers have probably known a lot of this anyway, just in a practical sense of from their experience of seeing what works and what doesn't work in terms of distributed learning, space revision and, thing, and things like this. I think what is happening now is we're gradually being able to tie in some of these types of learning with what we know about the brain systems involved. So I wouldn't want to insult teachers by saying, oh, you didn't know any of this and this is what you should be doing because a lot of them will be doing it anyway. But what maybe we can help one way in which we can help is to explain why it actually works in terms of how the brain functions. Fantastic. And as you know, uh, if you did your teacher training back in the 60s or 70s, there are so many updates, presumably, that are in this book that are very, those sorts of insights, I think, need to be regularly revised and and brought to, to teacher attention. Oh, yes, I I absolutely agree. I have a big vested interest here in, in that one of my research areas is educational neuroscience which is trying to take some of the insights from uh, mechanisms of learning in the brain and think how, how might that be useful f- for teachers. I think you're right that there, there are promising changes, say, in teacher training. So the Department for Education now has, has published a, a kind of outline of the sorts of knowledge that, that teachers should get while they're going through teacher training. And some of that is what we, we would now call the science of learning understanding a little bit more of some of the mechanisms, some of the ways learning works. I'm going to agree with Simon as well that as a neuroscientist, you start from the position that the teachers are the experts in the classroom, right? They know through their experience about what effective teaching is. And even if we understand something about how the brain learns as a neuroscientist, that doesn't necessarily solve the problem for a primary school teacher about how you get 36-year-olds changed into their PE kit. <laughs> so I think the important thing is, is if you're working in this area is to understand that the difficulty with vocabulary. So when we talk about learning, if you're a teacher, kids come into the classroom and they go out again 45 minutes later and hopefully they have some new skills or some new knowledge. And then you say, well, learning has taken place. But if you get into a neuroscience perspective, then as page 159 points out, there are lots of mechanisms of learning in in the brain. And the neuroscience work that's built up over decades is, is to understand how these different types of mechanisms work together. So, for example... I might well forget if if I don't have my atlas next to me what the capital of Bolivia is, but I'm never going to forget that I'm scared of spiders. Why is that? Why why one sort of information I might forget if I don't use it, but another type of information I never forget. And that's just because these two sorts of knowledge are being processed in different brain structures. So it's the same with with learning new facts. If if I learn a fact and it's really strange, I actually because I can't integrate that into my current knowledge, I find sort of random facts quite hard to memorize and then then come back and recall them in a test. But if something really unusual happens to me, like a novel experience, that sticks in my mind. Again, why should there be a difference in novelty between facts and experiences? And it's because there are different brain systems. Excuse me, Michael, would that mean that, for example, I love that idea. So does that mean that, for example, if we even as parents, if we teach our children something in a sort of con- rich contextual environment where they they can remember the tree and where we were in the park when we talked about photosynthesis, is that more likely to be retained as a sort of a as a as a piece of learning or a piece of knowledge if the context is rich and interesting and surprising? I think that's right. That speaks to, to many aspects uh, about the importance of emotion in learning and curiosity in learning. And the, the fact that a lot about learning is how we access that knowledge later on. And that's why teachers now focus on something called retrieval practice, that you, you actually, having learned some information, practice trying to retrieve it afterwards and to apply it to different situations. If you have rich episodic memories of the situation in which you learnt it or the, the narrative that it was presented to you, then that can help with the retrieval. Also, I think that it's really important that 
new knowledge is integrated with is built in to, to uh, old knowledge. I think, I think teachers know this. I mean, it's just a, more of a surprise how strong the effect is to, to neuroscientists about how you have to build new learning on the basis of old learning. And what do we know? The, the key question, the one question we were asked as an organisation through the pandemic, how do I motivate my child? And I have to say it was mainly boys to learn. This issue about motivation it is just extraordinary. You know, I think you've mentioned it here in your book about talking about the, the learning rewards, the potential rewards attached to this task. I have to learn 25 French words. How can I motivate my teenage son to want to do that task? And how can I take the knowledge within your book to help him to feel that he is learning and not giving up this concept of giving up easily when the learning becomes tough? Michael, share your wisdom on that one. Well, George, Simon has will have practical tips that they're going to have the sort of things that we've both learned by what works with our, with our own kids. Yeah, I mean, that was something that was quite surprising to me when I was trying to understand the different learning mechanisms in the brain. And as you say, I got up to about a list of eight and, and there'll probably be more to be added in that. But one of the interesting ones is whether mental effort is a, a like a learning mechanism. And, and what's curious if you're looking at the brain is we tend to think the brain is plastic is flexible to learn throughout the lifespan so why is it then that kids find it so hard to learn in the classroom and why is it that they don't like school because why is, why should that be unpleasant if, if the brain is plastic and the answer to that from a, a neuroscience point of view is that mental effort costs and the brain doesn't like paying that the brain has a, a an amount of energy to spend and it's always looking to cut corners now part of that is by making things automatic the more we practice them so we don't have to like concentrate so hard but there is a part of the brain that is always running computations on whether it's any task is worth the effort given your expectations on your success and given the likely rewards you'll get so all those kids in the classroom and they're being told to learn their French vocabulary, part of their brain is going, am I likely to succeed at this and is it worth it? So the way we can encourage children to learn is to try and rebalance that calculation, to point out what they will gain in terms of their self-regard, in terms of their parents loving them even more through their success, <laughs> in terms of you know the what it will enable them to get and improve their, their self-image. And perhaps even, you know, we, we like the application of carrots as well as sticks, the, the kind of small, local, immediate, personally relevant rewards that we can give them. And as, as Simon and I found out, often that is time on their devices. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, I was going to back up what Michael w w w was saying. I think it's also important not to over-dramatize the situation. Coincidentally, one of the boys last night was having to learn 20 French vocabulary words, and I couldn't pretend to him that this would change his life, that blah de blah It's to set a context in which this is the educational process. They're doing subjects, some of which they like and some of which they won't like. Immediately, there are the rewards Michael was talking about. You know, obviously, over my lifetime this transition into into ipads and laptops and everything else in the evenings and their phones it has been a remarkable tra transition and you think it's it just must be bad their absolute obsession with these things but of course it pays off in the sense of those small intermediate rewards that you can offer frankly they would learn 50 french words if you gave them an extra 20 minutes on their ipad <laughs> and so is is acknowledging that if they aren't old enough, they can't take in that this is part of the process. They, they don't know what line they're going to follow in life. They don't know if they're going to want to go to university. They probably, I know there are exceptions. There are some kids who know even now, even at 11, 12, 13, exactly what they want to follow. And that's fine. Highly motivated. And they understand they have to get a range of different GCSEs, etc. But a lot of kids don't know it that age exactly where they're going to end up and you can give them that perspective but don't expect them to take it in completely they understand something about i have to do this because everyone has to do it encourage them small intermediate rewards and something might happen and coincidentally again last night i've been reading from bill bryson's book on the body and suddenly one of the boys chirps up and says oh yes we did chromosomes and genes today and we did allels and eye color and the way one can be dominant. And 
major breakthrough. There was, he was actually enthusiastic about this little topic they had picked up. And that touch wood will happen with most kids that along the way they'll come across, you know, the things that they really enjoy. And that helps get the general message across that this is where education takes you. It gives you opportunities. And hopefully at 14, 15, 16, 17, you develop those interests and you then have a line that you can follow in life. It sounds like he takes after his dad, which is great, um, <laughs> with that intellectual curiosity. We've hinted at it, but I want to talk about praise and the use of effective praise to, as a sort of driver for in, intrinsic motivation. Or, you know, I know that parents often, you know, ask about the, the quality of praise that we should be giving our children, how we give it, the context for it the question around over-praising, under-praising. I think just to share what I thought I knew in this area, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, I remember interviewing the neuroscientist, you might know him, Paul Howard Jones, during the pandemic. And he talked when everybody was saying, how can I get these kids to sit down and be motivated to do their learning? And I remember him saying that the brain loved novelty and that it was nice to try and surprise them occasionally with both the way in which you deliver praise and also being specific and sincere in our praise and that that could actually take them aback and that being taken aback by the quality of praise and the way in which it was targeted could be deeply motivating. Now, have I understood that correctly, Michael? Uh, yes, well, Paul knows very much what he's talking about in this area. That's one of his specialist areas, looking at how the brain predicts reward. We often hear about dopamine as being like, you know, a fantastic feeling, the dopamine hit, the kind of reward hit. But a, a lot of what the brain is doing is trying to predict the rewards it's going to get in order to guide future behavior. And if there there is a mismatch between what the brain predicts it's going to get in terms of rewards and what actually happens, then the brain really switches on. That's a really important learning event. And Paul's done some fantastic work looking whether you can harness that unpredictability of reward to like maximize learning events. But yeah, I'm very interested in the, in the work in rewards and how they relate to learning, because for a while, people were a little bit cautious about extrinsic rewards external rewards and and the view that if you always rewarded someone for something that that they were interested in already that actually it would lessen their interest and turn them to be as it were more mercenary they'd just be doing it all for the external rewards and that gave a sense a little bit of hesitancy about whether you should be using external rewards to to encourage kids to to like read books and kind of thing and i think now the story is a little bit nuanced that we think that you can use extrinsic rewards as, as a kind of a gateway to encourage kids to get into situations and do activities that they will then find intrinsically rewarding. So you can just nudge your child along into situations which they that then might generate their own rewards and their own curiosity from. So in other words, we could pay them five pounds to wash the car and then we because we know that they'll probably actually really enjoy that task and maybe, maybe want to do it the next time. <laughs> That's not always going to work. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so moving swiftly on, I want to talk about this topic which you cover beautifully around peers and peer pressure and the desire to belong to that peer group and pecking orders. I think you even talk about pecking orders in mice and all sorts of things and lots of references to rodents and other mammals and things in the book. But I wanted to talk about the bit that will be of interest to parents and educators, and that is how we help teenagers who have this biological or evolutionary drive to belong, to impress again, thinking about is this event or is this activity worth it? I think you talk about in the book when they're deciding to make it, you know, when they're making that decision about whether or not to pursue a particular activity and weighing that up. Now, schools all over the country, all over the world at the minute, they're faced with a crisis of young people vaping, making poor decisions around even, you know, the consumption of certain substances, navigating peer pressure is very, very challenging. And I wanted to talk about what we know about the adolescent brain and the way in which they make decisions 
that we can use in the application of our appeal to young people not to partake in particular harmful or risk-taking behaviour. So in other words, I thought I understood from neuroscience that telling children not to do something won't work at that particular stage of development, but instead getting them, A, interested in the way in which their brain is working and why they feel the urge to do particular things. But lastly, you know, what is it that we can do to, is it helping them think about the decision-making process and weighing up the rewards or otherwise associated with that activity seems to be an optimal way forward. So again, feel free to correct me or educate me around that. So thinking about these teachers, these parents who are faced with young people perhaps partaking in particular decision-making and what can we do about that other than just give them a leaflet about the do's and don'ts, Michael? Yeah, so adolescent brain development is is a fascinating area where where neuroscience feels like it has made a marked contribution. And this is work from the 2000s onwards to to understand using brain imaging that the brain actually develops, goes on developing for quite a long period. It's really only reaching its maturity by the early 20s. And that, that a lot of development is going on in the teenage years. Now, there was initially a view that around puberty, everything goes haywire. And somehow there's there's a view that the limbic systems, the emotion system has matured a little bit faster than your ability to your cognitive control. Uh, that's not ready. And, and you're somehow very impulsive and taking risks. And, and I think the view is moving away from that now to think that This is partly from an evolutionary perspective and looking across different species that juvenile behavior or adolescence is just a common phase that you see in in social primates where you're growing up for some period in the care of your parents, but at some point you need to break out of that. You need to move away from your family and be more concerned about interacting with your peer group and where you're going to stand with your peer group and, and building those kind of relationships. And and part of that desire to be more exploratory, I think underpins risk-taking. But we know there's evidence, not just in humans, other species, that that in that period, you're likely to take more risks. But also, there's this shift from being concerned about what your parents think to what your peer group thinks. So a much greater sensitivity to what your peers think as being a reward for you. So the view now is that adolescents are, are making sort of optimal decisions within their local context for them in the moment, as I, as you mentioned, that, that often they make decisions to vape or, or stay out late at night on street corners. You know, they think it's worth it because it'll get them the kinds of rewards that they want. What they don't have at that age is an accumulated database, or might call it wisdom, of the likely long-term consequences of the different actions they take. So they just don't know the long-term consequences, and therefore that element tends not to weigh in on their decisions. And from a sensible grown-up point of view, you think, oh, that's a risky behavior, but they don't necessarily see that because they're not thinking about the consequences in the moment. So how we can help them is to try and impart some of that wisdom and to give them more knowledge. This is where information about how the brain works is just useful for teenagers, gives them better insight into the way they're thinking, and then to encourage them to sort of pause and think and give their brains a chance to recall some of this knowledge about what might be the longer consequences for the kind of actions that they're planning to take. So don't just intuitively do something to impress your friends, but actually integrate in there somewhere what might be the long-term consequences. Yeah, I love that point. Just take a meta moment. You know, just we, I used to be a probation officer and we used to teach offenders to just think first. <laughs> we had a whole program called Think First, just trying to intercede in that moment between, you know, impulsivity and what seems like a really, really good idea. I was just going to say that over the last couple of centuries, adolescence has been a problem. There's no magic cure. It's a phase, as Michael has pointed out, given that the brain is still maturing, given that they're moving away from the family setting into the wider world, some of this is inevitable and it is a case of not saying oh 
really bad parents, look what they're doing. It's providing them with a stable background and providing them with advice you know, that they may take on board or they may not. But it's trying to accelerate that uh, accumulation of wisdom that means they'll understand why doing X is actually not the best route. But, you know, adolescence is adolescence and they all have to go through it. Is there any evidence that the more, not that we're nagging them, but the more consistent we are with those reminders about that knowledge? You know, it seems to be particularly with teenagers that you have to sort of reiterate things a little bit, you know, (laughs) a little bit more than perhaps we Mm. want to. Is there any evidence that, given what you said about learning earlier, that that is important, that sort of consistency of message over time? I think they want their parents to be consistent. Uh, I I tend to overreact and I consciously try and, and tone that down because heavens they're only 12 you know they cannot take much stuff in and seeing me get angry over something is pointless they just think oh he's angry you know but trying to give them some you know i'm a fair bit older than them and i'm meant to have picked up some wisdom along the way so if i can say you know these are the consequences you'll probably go ahead and do it anyway but then i'm going to say i told you so yeah and hopefully just accelerate this more mature view of the way the world operates but hell bringing up kids is just uh you know it's just tough i do remember a story from an educational psychologist who said i knew of three different options in bringing up teenagers and now i have three teenagers and no no option i've tried them all and nothing has worked but on the more optimistic side, the vast majority of kids will, by the time they get to 2021, 20, they're going to be fine. Thank you. We're going to put that in big quotation marks. And I <laughs> love the fact that Sarah Jane Blakemore, who you'll all know, she talks very openly about how exciting and positive and what a creative and magnificent time adolescence is as well. So they might get a bad rap sometimes, adolescence, but adolescence is a period of extraordinary you know, excitement and joy. And we can really, there's so much to enjoy about adolescence, isn't there, Michael? <laughs> oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, part of, we talked about the, the the desire to explore, to form their identities and understand who they are. And, and there's so many opportunities and so many adventures. I think it's, it's a terrific phase. So I'm conscious of time, but I have a last question for you. I've always wanted to find parents of twins and who are neuroscientists and experts on the brain to ask. It's it's taken me quite a long time. I mean, as a criminologist, we are aware of lots of twin studies that we were sort of educated around. But I want to ask you both, for parents of twins in particular, where, where's the sort of uh, the knowledge base on twins and raising twins from a parenting perspective? What have you, you know, is there anything, I've never found a decent book on raising twins that I could believe in, or a lot of parents of twins ask us about parenting twins. Tell us a little bit about what you've learned about where the insights might be around raising twins and maybe a few little tips for other parents about what you're (laughs) applying in your parenting. Michael, you can go first. (laughs) (laughs) So when my wife was pregnant with twins, obviously, yeah. I like to read, right? So I went straight off to the bookshop to buy as many kind of parenting books about having twins. And, and I'm not sure how they've been useful. It's it's a very intense experience. And uh, the early years seems the most intense. I think the, the toughest bit for me with twin boys was when they were toddlers and they would just run off in different directions with no uh, uh, idea of what, what was dangerous and so forth. Or that. that was just keeping everyone alive phase and, and now we've gone through and we're into heavily into education but we're also in this phase of the twins forming their identities and and I think that the key message in my head at the moment is to help them in that process of, of understanding themselves as individuals and what their relationship should be to their twin and a, a heuristic a rule of thumb I try and use is some dedicated time separately with each individual so that that you can form individual relationships with them rather than just treating them as twins as as a pet and michael we had a teacher who knew i was going to interview you and she knew you had twin boys and she has twin boys who are toddlers and a big question she wanted me to ask you if you don't mind is would you put twins in different classes 
do you think it's better for them to be together and develop that attachment or do you think they should be in separate classes? Yeah, my view is that they should be in, in separate classes. I mean, it's not a, a die-in-the-ditch thing, but I think that's beneficial for them to form separate peer groups and separate identities because they have a, a lot of the rest of the day they're, they're with each other. And I think that that gives them more opportunities and, and more options if, if they're in separate classes. Lovely. Simon, any final thoughts, words of wisdom? Well, we were probably lucky. I don't know. I'm not sure that the luck is the word, but in many ways, our twins are non-identical. And in terms of temperament and interests, one's sporty, one isn't, is more academic. One is a fairly anxious child and the other one isn't. It's never been an issue over, are they too close and do we need to separate them? So they happily went off to different high schools. It wasn't a case of, I want to go where, you know, where my brother's going. So we didn't have that issue over, they were identifying too much with each other. In fact, to me, the problem's a bit different. I wish they were closer. <laughs> you know, I wish they did see themselves, you know, we're twins, we're brothers, we'll look after each other. I hope that that will come. I hope that that will come over the next few years. And so, I mean, I think the message is you treat them as individuals, you help them as individuals, but their twin is always there. And I think they'll become more conscious of that and hopefully more appreciative of that as the years go by. Well, I think it's an amazing gift, isn't it, to have twin boys. It's fantastic. It's just brilliant being a parent. And if we had another hour, we could just keep going because you two are fantastic. And I've loved this interview and I, I love your book. And I'm I'm just, I, as I said, I, I just think the subtitle, What Psychology Students Needs to Know, could be edited to what everyone needs to know. <laughs> So thank you so much for, you know, your contribution today. And we wish you all the very best with the book and with your future work as well in this area. Thank you so much, both of you. Thank you. Okay. Thank you, Kathy. This Get a Grip podcast is brought to you by Tooled Up Education, the home of evidence-based tips on parenting, family life and education. www.tooledupeducation.com Parents and teachers in Tooled Up Schools can also access notes accompanying each podcast available to read and download from the Tooled Up site.